Well, good morning. How is everyone? Good. It's good to be here with you guys. It was just great to sing with you, hear your voices, proclaim our faith together. Children, you guys can be dismissed this time for Children's Church. And if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to pull it out. If you have a Bible app, go ahead and get plugged into there. And turn to the book of Luke that we continue to go through. Today we're going to be in the 22nd chapter, Luke chapter 22. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Jesus as he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke chapter 22, we begin to read of Jesus' passion account of his final sacrifice on our behalf. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pause and we pray with me. Father, as we come to this account of our Lord's life, his passion in your word, I pray that we would See it afresh. Father, we've heard of this story many, many times. Father, I pray that through your Spirit, you would show us a clear picture of who your Son is, of the agony that he endured for us. That through it, we may know how much you love us and that it would radically change our lives moving forward. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Well, I am a big fan of church history. I love uh, reading some of the stories of church history, and church history is permeated with stories of valiant men and women who were martyred for their faith. Perhaps the first story that we read about is in Scripture in Acts chapter 7. You might remember there that Stephen was stoned to death. He was stoned for proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And as he faced death, he faced it with confidence in his Savior as well as compassion for his executioners. He prayed as Jesus did, forgive them, Father, for what they do. Also in church history, there's a story that As the Roman soldiers came to arrest the early church father, Polycarp, 
Polycarp himself was a student of the Apostle John. It's told that Polycarp Polycarp offered the Roman soldiers who came to take him away food and drink. He offered them hospitality and requested only that he be allowed to go into a room and pray before they take him. When standing before the magistrate and asked to recant his faith, Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served Christ and not once did he wrong me. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Because of his unwillingness to recant his faith, Polycarp was burned at the stake. Before being beheaded for defending Christ as the one true God, Justin, who has later become known as Justin Martyr, told his prosecutors, you can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. During the time of the Reformation, Michael Sattler knew his death would be extremely torturous. His opponents feared that he, like other Christian martyrs before him, would go to the stake proclaiming praise to God, singing hymns, and that the words coming from his lips as he was about to die would inspire other followers of Jesus to follow Christ more courageously. Therefore, his sentence read, Michael Sattler shall be committed to the executioner. The executioner shall take him to the square and there first cut out his tongue. And then forge him fast to a wagon and there with glowing iron tongs twice tear pieces from his body. Then on the way to the site of execution, he shall tear pieces from his body five times more. And then finally burn his body powder. Knowing that this was going to be his end and the way that he would die, Sattler told those who were his brothers and sisters in Christ, his closest companions, he told them to look for a sign that he would give them in the moment of his death that would reassure them that God's grace is sufficient and that the death of a martyr is bearable. He said, I will raise my forefingers as a testimony to God's goodness, even in the moment of death. And indeed, through the smoke rising up from the flames below, onlookers could peer in and see that as Michael Sattler was dying, his fingers were raised straight. When the Reformation's wave swept England, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were tied side by side and burned at the stake for their faith. And as the flames were kindled below, Latimer said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. Today we shall light a candle. By God's grace in England, I trust it shall never be put out. These stories and many more of valiant Christian men and women willing to give their lives for Jesus and facing death with strength and courage, peace, and even compassion have inspired followers 
to give it all, to lay it all down on the line for Jesus, for the sake of their King and Savior. Yet when we read of Jesus' final night before his execution, we see the King and Savior himself in great agony as he faces the horror of his death that he is about to face. Did he lack the level of courage that these others have exhibited throughout church history? Or was he facing something different from what anyone else, either before or after him, has ever faced? Well, today I propose to you that the anguish in Christ's soul, which we read about in Luke chapter 22, does not reveal the weakness of our Savior, but it reveals the strength of his love. So let me begin to show you how that's so. You know, as human beings, we all tend to be filled with anxiety. And oftentimes, we are filled with anxiety when we're thinking about the future and wondering what's going to happen, knowing that we don't control what's going to happen in the future. Right? For instance, some of us maybe more so than others, we know that we can't control the wings of an airplane. So we get a little anxious before stepping on board and taking off, right? We cannot control the reaction of other people, and we crave their approval. Therefore, we get anxious before standing up and speaking before someone, before giving a speech, We can't control a tumor's response to radiation and chemotherapy. Therefore, we get anxious about the results of the next scan. Well, in this passage in Luke 22, we see Jesus' humanity in full color. But make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ, who was fully human, was also fully God. And Jesus, the God-man, was still in control. We see this throughout the chapter of Luke 22. If If we do a cursory reading of Luke 22, we see that in verses 7 through 13, Jesus is instructing Peter and John where to prepare the Passover meal. And he says to them in verse... Seven, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. Well, as they're eating the meal, Jesus says in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. He knew this was going to be his last meal before his execution. And while reclining around the table, Jesus says in verse 21, that the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus knew of Judas' plan, though none of his other disciples did. He knew the deal that Jews had struck with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. 
And Jesus also knew that Peter, who said, Lord, I will never betray you. I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to go to death for you. He knew that even Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows that very night. Jesus knew he was fulfilling God's eternal plan. And he knew all that that plan entailed. Look at verse 37. He says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled. What scripture is he talking about? And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. He's quoting Isaiah 53 there. And in Isaiah 53, where we read of the suffering servant, whom Jesus knew to be himself, we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew the Lord was about to crush him. And the amazing thing is that he's not trying to prevent it. But instead, he's actually leading the way. Look at verse 39. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Okay, so Jesus knows that he's about to be betrayed by Judas. He knows he's about to be taken into custody and handed over to be crucified. Yet he's continuing with his regular routine. He's not hiding. He's not being elusive. He's not playing catch me if you can. He's going to the same old spot in the same old garden that he knows Judas will know where he's at. And he's leading the way. He's leading his disciples there. Jesus is in control. Why is that significant? Why does that matter? Why is Luke stressing this as he writes this portion? It's to show us that he's going to the cross. He's going to endure its shame, its horror, by his own voluntary will. It's his own choice. Read again with me, picking up in verse 40. It says, And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Here we see Jesus striving with the Father in prayer. 
And by his example alone, we learn a great valuable lesson here. That when hard times come, don't run from your circumstances. Run to the Father. Run in prayer to the Father. But let's look even closer at what Jesus is requesting. At what he's resolving to do. Jesus' desire is that this cup be removed. This cup. What is this cup that he's talking about? What does it mean when he says this cup? Well, the cup is a metaphor that's used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, throughout our Old Testament, for God's wrath on human evil. God's anger and punishment of human evil. For instance, in Isaiah 51, 22, God speaks of the cup that made you stagger, the goblet of my wrath. And after God had long been patient with his people, forbearing with their sins and their wayward ways, and they continued to reject him, the prophets would use this imagery, this metaphor of a cup that was filled to the brim with God's wrath. There was just waiting to overflow and be poured out and dumped upon his people so that they would be devastated. This cup represents God's hot anger toward sin. And Jesus is going to drink every last drop of it. Now understand that this is not new information to Jesus. It's not like Jesus came to the garden and all of a sudden realized, oh no, I have to drink the cup. He knew all along that this was the plan. Throughout the entire book of Luke, Jesus lived and acted out of an awareness of his mission. Do you remember when Jesus was at the temple and Mary and Joseph were looking for him? When they found him in the temple, what did he say? He said, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? He knew God was his heavenly father. He knew that he had come to do his business, to do his will. In chapter 9, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and leads his disciples there, knowing that it is in Jerusalem that he's going to be handed over and crucified. Again and again, Jesus explicitly told his disciples that he would have to suffer and die. One instance is in chapter 9, verse 22, where Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so this is not new information for Jesus that he's going to have to drink the cup. But here in the garden, he's so close to the time in which he will have to drink the cup as he bears our weight of sin on the cross. He's so close to it that he's beginning to taste it. He sees it. He smells it. He can taste it. He can feel it. He's getting a clear vision of the horror that it will be to drink the cup of God's wrath. Now let's talk about God's wrath for a minute because that's an idea, that's a concept that we don't like. We bristle against this idea that, that the God that we serve, the God of the Bible, is a wrathful God, a God who gets angry. It's interesting, interesting that throughout the entire Bible, 
the most angry character in all of Scripture is God himself. We like a God who is love. We like a God who is compassionate and full of mercy. So sometimes we try to soften God's wrath by saying, you know, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And there's truth in that. Certainly, God would never die so that sin could continue and be preserved. But he did die so that sinners could continue and be preserved. But what about verses like Psalm 5-5, which says God hates all evildoers? It doesn't say God hates all evil, which is true. But it says God hates evildoers. He hates the people that do evil. See, our problem is that when we think of hate, when we think of wrath, when we think of anger, we see that as something that is exclusive from love. We don't see how the two could ever go together. If you're loving, you don't get angry. If you love, you don't hate. But wrathful anger Hear this, wrathful anger is an expression of love. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, says, if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. If you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. Anger is an expression of love. Do you realize that? If someone tries to harm my wife, I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get very angry. Why is that? It's because I love my wife. I cherish her. I treasure her. God's anger is righteous and holy. Now, ours, understand, is seldom righteous and holy. Okay? We often get angry for ungodly reasons. But even unrighteous anger, even those ungodly reasons to get angry, is still an expression of love, even though it's the wrong kind of love. It's often the love for ourselves. Consider why I would get so mad and filled with anger if I get stuck in traffic and it makes me late for an appointment. I get upset and I get angry because I love comfort. I love a smooth and easy ride that doesn't have any interference I love myself, and I want to look good to the people that I'm about to meet. I want to be able to arrive on time so that they can view me as someone who's responsible, right? I hate being late. I'd rather not show up at all than walk into a place late. And so I get angry and upset because I love portraying myself as this responsible person, and now I know that I'm not going to be able to do that because I'm late, So my anger stems from my love of myself. Obviously for God who is just, who loves justice, and who calls us to act and do justly, he's going to get angry at injustice. So yes, God's wrath is a function of his justice, but it's also a function of his love. You can't separate God's attributes. God loves everything that he created. Everything he created, he said, was good. 
was as it was supposed to be, as it was intended to be. And he loves his creation. He loves the birds. He loves the horses. He loves humans. He loves all of us. And so he's angered that creation is not as it's supposed to be because we have ruined it. Creation is broken. We are broken. And that upsets God. Imagine with me. Imagine if God did not get angry. If God did not get angry, he would never act against evil. He would never punish injustice. He would never bless faithfulness. If God did not get angry, he would not come and die to free us from the slavery to evil that we are under. He would not restore us to life with him. For God to be truly tender towards us, as we desire for him to be tender towards us, he must also be tough on what destroys us. For God to truly be tender, he must be tough on what destroys us. Well, furthermore, and and I'm in debt to Tim Keller for the way that he brings this out, if I don't believe in a God of wrath, then I will never fully know, I will never fully understand his love for me. Okay, to the person who says, I I don't believe in a God of wrath. I don't believe in a God like that. I think God is just loving and kind. To, To that person, I say, okay then, show me what that loving God of yours, what his love actually looks like. Can you show me what his love looks like? The love of that God is just a concept. It's just an idea. It's an abstract. There's no fruit to say, here it is. This is what God's love looks like. At best we can do is project our own ideas of love onto this God. But the God of the Bible, the God who showcases both wrath and love is a God who has revealed His love, who has made it known, who has shown it to us so that we can know what it is. He has revealed His love by sending His Son to absorb His wrath so we don't have to. 1 John 4 eight. I love pointing this out. 1 John 4 is the classic verse that says God is love. God is love. We hear that all the time. God is love. Let me read that verse to you. 1 John 4 Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There it is. But what does his love look like? We'll keep going. Verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest, was made known, was revealed, was shown among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Oh, that's a big word, propitiation. Who knows? We've got some seminary students, man, they can... They're, they're eager 
to answer this. I can see it on the smile on their faces. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation means that Jesus became the satisfactory payment for our sins that removed God's wrath. Jesus became himself the satisfactory payment of our sins that removed God's wrath. So our God's love has been demonstrated to us. Our God's love, the God of the Bible's love, has a price tag on it so that we know how much it's worth. It's worth the infinite cost of his son's life. Perhaps some would say that, yes, Jesus' death demonstrates love because it's such a selfless sacrifice. And it's meant to woo us to this God. It's an example for how we should be selfless. And while it is an example for us, If Jesus' death didn't have anything to do with satisfying the wrath of God, then why did he have to die anyway? If all he did was die to show us an example for how we should live selfless and humble lives, that would just be an added burden to us. Because if Jesus is just an example to us, he is an example that we can never measure up to. But the good news of a personal God who has wrath towards sinners is that he is a personal God who can forgive sinners. It's a price that only he can pay. It's a gift that he gives. So the intensity of anguish that Jesus is experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane the anguish like no one before him ever experienced, no one after him has ever experienced, is because he is about to experience the full force of God's wrath. That cup filled to the brim of God's wrath is about to tip over, and Jesus will drink every last drop of it. God will exhaust his wrath on humankind, on his son. Jesus will absorb it in our place. For all eternity, the Son of God, who is fully God, had enjoyed mutual blessing with the triune Godhead, but now he's about to experience curse for us. He's so close to it now that he can can taste it So with frank honesty, Jesus prays to the Father, Father, if you're willing, will you remove this cup? Dad, it's your son here. I'm overwhelmed right now. Is there another way? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Amazing that in the face of such horror, Jesus, he, he, he doesn't resign from the plan. He doesn't ask God, say, God, can, can we just not go through with the plan? Can we abort the mission? He doesn't say that. He's asking the Father, hey, God, can we just revisit this plan one last time? Is there another way? 
to accomplish the mission to rescue sinners without me having to bear the weight of your wrath. In eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit had all conferred together and agreed that this would be the plan, that the plan entailed the Son coming to earth, suffering and dying to spare mankind from God's wrath. And so Jesus, he's not saying, let's not go through with this plan. He's just saying, is there another way? After all, the son's greatest desire, his most earnest desire, remains to honor his father and to save the ones he loves, to stay true to the plan. But the burden is so torturous that his immediate desire is for the burden to be lifted from him. You know, how easy is it for us to to give way to an immediate desire in response to some some difficulty that we're facing? Sometimes we give in to an immediate pressing desire that, that actually goes against what we truly desire deep down. Right? This is how we can be cruelest to those that we actually love the most. Ask a husband who he loves the most, and his answer should be that he loves his wife the most. That he wants to cherish her, honor her, protect his wife. Yet when frustrations rise at work or with the children, who is it? that he often takes it out on? It's his wife. It doesn't make sense for a husband to demean his wife or a wife to belittle her spouse or for parents to exacerbate their children. But we all do it because we act on impulse desires. We act in the heat of the moment. Even if our actions by giving in to an impulse desire is going against what we truly desire and hold dear. This cup of wrath presents to Jesus an impulse desire to avoid it. But he remains true to his deeper desire to honor the Father and save the ones he loves. So hear this. Jesus' immediate desire is to be spared His ultimate desire is to spare us. Jesus' immediate desire is to be spared, but his ultimate desire is to spare us. And he remains true to that ultimate desire. His love holds out. He doesn't give in to the impulse, the heat of the moment. And this all brings us greater appreciation for Jesus' own words in John 10, 18, which says, No one, takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, of my own will. Jesus, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That Luke records that an angel is sent to Jesus to strengthen him should remind us of that time in the wilderness when Jesus was facing temptation of the devil. And God sent angels to minister to him. 
Because here, make no mistake about it, Jesus is facing the greatest temptation of his life. The temptation to abandon the Father's will and give in to the impulse of the moment. But there is no other way to save sinners but for God's wrath to be poured out on a perfect substitute. So because Jesus is committed to carry forth the Father's will, which is ultimately His will, the Father hears His prayer and lovingly sends Him an angel to strengthen Him. And so here again we find a lesson that God will not always remove us from our tough and difficult circumstances, but He will strengthen us to endure them. Now don't forget who Jesus is. Jesus is the image of God. In him, the fullness of God dwells. Jesus is showcasing for us who the Father is. He told his disciples that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus mirrors God the Father. And so as we see Jesus wrestling and striving and anguished with carrying forth this plan, know that the Father too must also be in anguish. The anguish in Jesus' soul was so severe that it caused his body to sweat great drops of blood. He sweated the blood so profusely that it didn't just bead to his skin, but it was actually falling in pools to the ground. Christ's heart was full of sorrow. It was flooded with grief, but it was fuller still of a flood of love. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon on this text, says those great drops of blood that fell down to the ground were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. An ocean of love. And we must ask, love for who? Who is this great love that Christ is pouring out? Who is it for? Is it for a deserving following that had been so valiantly courageous for him? Was it for a loyal people who swelled with passion for God's glory? No. An ocean of love for the very souls who had stirred God's wrath. It was an ocean of love for man who had said no to God's will, yes to my will, in the Garden of Eden and ever since. It was an ocean of love for people filled with pride and arguing over who would be the greatest. It was an ocean of love for enemies and betrayers. It was an ocean of love for those who loved money and feared man more than they loved or feared God. Not only was Christ more painfully aware of the wrath that he was about to endure in the garden, he was also vividly aware of the unworthiness of the ones that he was going to endure that wrath for. He was vividly aware of the unworthiness of the people that he would bear God's wrath on their behalf. Right? It was not 12 disciples who followed him to the garden. It was 11. Jesus could look around him and see that one of his closest companions was betraying him and now leading his enemies toward him. 
It's as if in the garden that Jesus was brought near to a fiery furnace ablaze with the flames of wrath that he would soon be consumed by. And he could feel its heat. And looking into that furnace, he would then look back and say, I'm going into that furnace and I'm doing it for you. As he looked back, he saw that even his most loyal companions were fast asleep while their master was in agony. So on this night, Christ is clearly aware that he would endure the wrath of God for those who hate God. Christ would endure the wrath of God for those who hated Him. Christ's body weakened. His love remained strong. Christ's love held out. And the strength of His commitment to go to the cross, the strength of His resolve to continue the plan, to do the Father's will, shows the strength of His love for you. Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us. He shows us His love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for you because you showed some merit of worthiness. He knew you were unworthy. He saw it with clarity. And He still endured the wrath that you deserve. Christ's love for you, which was strong enough to willingly absorb the fullness of God's wrath, is the greatest love that you could ever know. You know, everyone else's love will at some point let you down. Your family's love, as much as they love you, there's going to be points in your life when your family will let you down. Your spouse will let you down. Your mother will let you down. Your best friend will let you down. Why? Because their love for themselves will interfere with their love for you. But not so with the Son of God. Nothing interfered with His love for you. He gave of himself. He willingly endured the greatest pain that anyone could ever endure, the very wrath of God for you. He did it willingly. He did it knowingly. He did it with clarity. And so here's my question. This is what I want to end on, is by asking you, if you are willing to give Jesus your sin so that he will absorb God's wrath on your behalf? Are you also willing to give him your life? I'm convinced that there are many people in the church today that will gladly give Jesus their sin, but they're not willing to give Jesus their life. And Jesus says, I want your life. Because I love you even more than you love yourself. I love you more than anyone else loves you. I want your life. I know what's best for you. 
and I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to take your sin, but I want to take your life and make you new. Second Corinthians 5.15 says that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Are you willing to give your life to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, your love is something we can't comprehend but it is something that we can clearly know father you have shown us your love by sending your son jesus to die on our behalf and we hear that and we become quite honestly too familiar with it so that it doesn't capture our hearts so father i pray that your spirit would enliven us to to know the weight of your love for us. To just know that a flood of your love, an ocean of your love has just been poured out on us. And Father, may we just be so thankful that we're willing to then give you our lives and say, Lord, use me, take me. Your will be done, not mine. In Christ's name I pray, amen. We're about to sing one of my favorite songs. And so I encourage you to 